Another series of Bring Back V10s is coming to a close. And if we were going to get through every question submitted during this series that we're yet to answer, we'd need to squeeze in about 100 in this final episode. Thank you so much to everyone who left us a question about the V10 era of F1, either by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or through leaving us a five-star podcast review. When we did this in our first series, I think we had about 10 questions left over by the end. And now a year later, we have 10 times that, which is just incredible. We love all the interaction that we get from you about the show. And for the break before our next series, I do have a question for you. So, dear audience, would you like us to start including stories from F1's V8 era in our future series? We've done one special episode of Bring Back V8s before kicking off Series 3, and we received a lot of questions for that. So if you'd like us to expand our era to tell some more stories from 2006 to 2013 as well in the future, let us know in the off-season using the hashtag BringBackV10s. But let's get back to the end of Series 3 and focusing on 1989 to 2005, as we always do. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, for another rummage through the best of your latest questions are Ed Straw and Matt Beer. Now, Ed, your approach to these questions from our audience tends to be the more obscure, the better. So of the ones we've picked out for today, which one are you most looking forward to? Well, there is one that might allow me to reference LaRousse, which I always enjoy, but anything that lets me talk about Onyx, there's one that I can talk about Onyx in, or Andrea Moda, AGS, Fon Matal. None of those last three are actually topics I can talk about but I just wanted to get them in just to, just to give them a mention and I may be hoping that perhaps somebody's asked about Noki Hattori's two event stint for Colonia at the end of 91 as a, as a late submission. Okay well I'm sure we'll get that in the next series now that you've done that but I love the idea that you think that you need an excuse to talk about LaRousse. You've managed to bring them up in pretty much every episode and uh, everyone marking their bingo cards for uh, Edge Draw Rubbish Team Bingo. Most of you have probably got a full house already. Matt, welcome back. Which one have you got your eye on in particular? It's one that took me by surprise. It's about comparing some particular teammates. And since you threw the questions out, I've been pondering it. I haven't got an answer yet because I sway about 20 times over which one I'd pick. It's question three on the script. So I've probably got about five minutes to make my mind up. And I might just um, toss a coin if I've got one to hand between now and that question happening. Just go with whichever way the wind's blowing when we finally get to that question. But before we start the questions, we'll do our final review shout-outs of the series. Thank you so much to everyone who has left us a review, and sorry if we didn't get around to calling your name out over the course of the series. But our latest thank yous go to Ross T555, Tom1988, Prima26, SK4Tech, and DS Gore. And even if I haven't read out your name, I promise I have been reading all of the reviews and they are greatly appreciated. But let's get going. Because, Matt, you can have the first question, which is from Cactus Jack. Bang, bang. And he says, uh, if Damon Hill stayed at Williams in 1997, would Jack Villeneuve have won the title that year? So if you want to get to that third question, Matt, answer carefully here. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. Sorry. Um, I, I, I'm not, I am quite a Jack Villeneuve fan, but I think his 97 driving was actually one of his weaker seasons, particularly compared to how magical he looked for much of 1996. Um, I think the pressure of expectation in 97, once he wasn't a rookie anymore and Williams was looking to him, um, did get to him. The The fact that Ferrari was becoming stronger opposition as well did play into his head a little bit. So I think in a situation where he didn't have the kind of grace of being a rookie anymore and he had to actually winning regularly for Williams, he was always going to be a bit more flaky in 97. And having a, a kind of very 
uncertain fish out of water for Enson as his teammate gave him a bit of a free pass there, whereas a much more established Damon Hill would have been significantly tougher opposition. And I also think Damon Hill going into 97, having won the 96 title, would have solved so many doubts in his head about his own potential, about his relationship with Frank Williams and, and Patrick Head as well. Um, if Williams had decided not to sack Hill and kept her into 97, that could have changed all these things we've talked about in Damon Hill episodes before about how he was looking for kind of fatherly guidance from the team and not getting it. So we would have seen a different Damon Hill up against the same Jacques Villeneuve and that same Jacques Villeneuve wouldn't have been good enough at that point to uh, to topple that better version of Hill. Okay, well, thanks for coming, Matt. That is the end of your appearance on the podcast. Um, I I think, and it, I'm trying to, I'm trying to look at this dispassionately, which is impossible. Uh, I think Villeneuve would have got the edge over Hill that season, but I still think Damon being there would probably mean Villeneuve wouldn't win the title because they take points off each other. So that would work in Schumacher's favour. Yeah, I I think it would have been the classic Williams problem, wouldn't it? The one we've seen so many times before. Two top drivers taking points off of each other. I I almost wonder if it would have helped Villeneuve's kind of focus and drive that year if if there had been Damon to aim at in the other car. But I feel really bad that... Damon Hill, we talk about Damon Hill so often, but so many of the most interesting stories about him that we've covered so far have been the kind of negative ones that Damon's been so honest about in reflection, and that's what makes him so interesting. So I feel that we owe Damon a a positive episode about himself in the future. And what better way to start than with Matt giving him the 1997 world title? (laughs) But let's move on to a question from one of our reviewers, uh, Shark Hello, who asks, why didn't McLaren pinch the Mugen Honda engine for 1993. So Ed, 93 was obviously when McLaren were fishing around for an engine when Honda itself pulled out. Moog and Honda were on the grid by this point. Shark Hello asked, wouldn't it have just made sense to take that? I just don't see it would have appealed to McLaren as an option or been workable from a Honda perspective. Because remember that Moog and Honda engine that Footwork used in 92 and 93 was a, a gentle development of the V10s that McLaren had last used in, in 1990 before they went to the V12 uh, engine. So Mugen had been bought in to service the, the pseudo-work supply that Tyrrell had, which was the old V10s, and then they they continued it. It was independently funded, but with some Honda expertise. So McLaren wouldn't want to want that, wouldn't want to go to a several-year-old engine that they once had, and Honda wouldn't want to be seen to be continuing when it was kind of had this sort of low-key involvement through Mugen. McLaren knew they needed a works engine. Honda was never going to be that option uh, certainly not uh, not until 23 years later or whatever it was when they got uh, got Honda back with hilarious consequences so Ford was actually quite a good option because it was a decent engine there was the possibility which I'm sure was in Ron Dennis's mind that they might be able to steal the works deal from Ford and indeed they did get works status parity if you see what I mean in terms of the engine specs so that was a shrewd move and of course McLaren got their works partner. It's just a shame it was uh, it was Peugeot. But the Mugen engine in 93 would have been less competitive and just a dead end. Yeah, I agree. It was just ancient technology by that, st- by that point, as far as McLaren were concerned. Uh, we'll move on to question three that Matt's already mentioned. So we'll give Matt a little bit more time to work out his answer. We'll come to you first, Ed. The question is from Richard Warner, who quite simply says, burger or a lacy? It depends. It's the same with Matt. It depends on what particular time of the day it is, because they actually add up to fairly similar drivers, both very good at times, both prone to falling asleep, 
both probably didn't fulfil the... We all fall asleep, Ed, ideally (laughs) once a day. (laughs) Yeah, but we try not to do it during the middle stint of a Grand Prix. And (laughs) if you look at their time together, it's a sample set of five seasons across two teams, which is extremely unusual for drivers to have have that length of time together, let alone across two teams. The stats aren't that different. 151 points to Alacy, 132 to Berger, 42 to 35 to Alacy in qualifying, one win for Alacy, two wins for Berger. They add up to a similar sort of thing. They're both frustrating drivers, and I think they're kind of symptomatic of, of a time when what was expected of a Formula One driver evolved quite quickly, obviously the Schumacher influence and the, the arrival of sprint races, etc. So it depends what you like, really. No question at the time I'd have said Alacy. No question at all. But actually, that was based upon the unfulfilled potential and the bad luck. But actually, I kind of increasingly realised that there were some certain weaknesses in Alacy that counted against him. But Berger had them as well. Ideally, pre-Imola 89 accident, Berger would be my choice, but that doesn't really work for, for this. So I think it depends. it depends which one you prefer. What you don't do is take both of them, which I think is a point Pat Simmons made about Benetton. That was a, a big mistake. But I, I feel like... With Berger, when things were really right, you got a really good level of performance. With Alacy, it was a little bit more random as to when you got that good performance. So I feel like if you put Berger in a car that could win the race, generally he'd make a good fist of it if he was on form. Whereas Alacy, you just never know. We talked about Nürburgring 95 before. I think that was a race he should have won, really. So maybe by a millimetre, Berger takes it. But they add up to very, very similar options. So while, while Ed was going through his lengthy and well-researched answer, I just did my usual uh, bring back V10s thing of going, what, what did I think when I was 14, 15? And on that basis, it's Berger, because I just found Alacy so, so frustrating. Um, I mean, obviously, the answer to Berger or Alacy is Schumacher, because that's what every team that ran that pairing realised was <laughs> the better option. Um, but yeah, Alacy's peaks were so in- incredibly high, like the first half of Nürburgring 95 or the drive on slicks and the wet at Suzuka that year after his penalty was just like, nobody else in the field could have done that. But yeah, there were also days where you'd think a, a backmarking pay driver wouldn't have done what Alacy's just done. It was, the the variation in performance was just so great. And I think Ed, Ed used the word random to describe Alacy's best days. And that was it, really. If if it was a slightly damp Grand Prix, you could put some money on him starring then. But really, you never knew what you were going to get. You knew what was what was possibly in there, and it was just extraordinary. But it appeared two or three times a year, and you can't really you can't you certainly can't build a championship challenge on that. And if you're a front running F1 team, you can't be signing that. Um, I think Berger before his Imola crash and before the experience of going up against Senna and realizing kind of where he really stood in the world. If you if you take that kind of wrestling a, a turbocharged Benetton BMW around on a qualifying lap era burger that was pretty special too so yeah definitely burger with the caveat that Alacy had higher potential but he used it about five times in his career yeah it's burger for me and uh, I didn't get quite as many fence sitting splinters as either of you two before coming to that conclusion um, he did he won more races uh, I think he was more reliable and I think in a way Alacy was great in 95 but I think he was flattered by two things that year one was how good that Ferrari was um you know John Barnard who designed it uh, is convinced that Schumacher could have won the world championship in it um but also I think I think Alacy was flattered by a lack of opposition in 95 you know with the Ferrari had a great car um 
Benetton had Johnny Herbert in the second car who was having a, a rocky season where he wasn't always that happy. McLaren were rubbish. There wasn't really anyone else there. So Alacy's peaks stood out more that year. You had the Williams drivers. By the second half of the year, we know Damon Hill was all at sea mentally. So again, that opened a gap for someone else to appear as kind of almost the heir to the throne versus Schumacher. And yeah, I just think Alacy was so much unfulfilled potential in the end. And I think that frustration leans me towards Berger, where you probably did have a better idea of what you were going to get. You mentioned 95 there, which is an interesting case, because I thought the same as you. Oh, yeah, Lacey really quick in, in 95. And then actually I looked back and Berger had a better qualifying record. So Lacey had some great peaks. And later in the season, in particular, obviously, everyone thinks of Monza, which was a race he, he could have won. But I think that just sort of sums up what you get with a Lacey. You get these handful of drives, which are fantastic or unbelievable, or even sometimes stints in Grand Prix that are brilliant. And then a lot of the rest of the time, you're thinking, what, what are you actually doing? I wonder what could have been possible with him if he was in the right team environment earlier in his career. But Berger's probably the slightly more dependable one. But you want to put Berger among uh, Berger alongside a young Charger. I think would have been the the good option. Well, this is it. This is why even fourteen year old me was was sick of a Lacey just teasing me by being by being good twice a year. You know, and I was someone who's always liked the kind of unreliable lunatic. I was a massive Montoya fan later on and stuff, and a massive Villeneuve fan early on. But no, e- even as a child, I just, yeah. Like you say, Berger scored more points and was a dependable one, and uh, Alessi was always just going to break your heart if you took him too seriously. Now, we briefly mentioned Johnny Herbert in the Benetton there, and there's actually a follow-up question we can attach to this, which comes from umpire Liam. So, Matt, Liam says, given that Johnny Herbert won two races in '95. And Alessi and Berger only won one race between them in 96 and 97 in competitive cars. Should Benetton have actually kept Herbert and rewarded him for his performances in 95? I think, Liam, you're just offering uh, Herbert a load of mental torture there by suggesting it might have been a, a, present, a, you know, a rewarding present for him to stay on at, at Benetton. When, um, when Johnny talks about those Benetton, that Benetton year in a bit, it's, it's so clear how quickly he, re- he became just so unsettled and so unhappy at that team and so sick of the Flavio Briatore approach like even his his two wins at Silverstone and Monza are all you know they're tainted by the team reaction and Briatore's disinterest in him all the paranoia over advantages Schumacher may or may not have been getting you know okay that was that was the most competitive car of Johnny Herbert's F1 career and it allowed him to win two-thirds of his races but being there was an, I don't think there was a single pleasurable second of his time there really and it did him it did. It did his. It did perceptions of him quite a lot of damage. Even though he won two Grand Prix, including his home race there, because up until '95 he was this amazing talent in the terrible Lotus, and we never really knew what he was really going to be capable of. And then going into Benetton, being two seconds slower than Schumacher, sometimes gave a a false impression in a completely different way. We never really got to see what the uh, what the actual kind of Herbert capability was. So. I think the ideal reward for for Johnny Herbert for everything he did in '95 was that Sauber came relatively good in '97 and let him have quite a you know, relatively decent season with another podium. I think the one thing, while I agree with everything Matt said there, the one advantage that keeping Herbert would have had for Benetton is because he'd struggled with that really pointy car that Schumacher worked well with, that Berger and Lacey struggled with. He might have helped one of those drivers understand a bit more what the problem was and help the team adapt the car to them a little bit more but I think that's a, a minority argument should we say and, and overall I think he was he was well out of there but 
Coming back to the, the pre-accident one, pre-accident Johnny Herbert and pre-accident uh, Gerhard Berger, that would have been a good lineup for Benetton in, in 97, but that's very much a, uh, uh, in 96, that's very much a, a, a counterfactual version. Well, that, that would be a great lineup, definitely. I think, I do get, I do get your point. I think 90, 96 onwards, Herbert would have gotten better at Benetton with the staff lineup changing and that sort of thing, and the cars still being slightly comp- competitive in the front running way, but I don't think he could have stayed at Benetton beyond 95 without um, basically stabbing Flavio Briatore at some point. Yeah, I mean, we had we had Johnny on for that brilliant Lotus 94 episode. And at the end, I said to him, like, thank you so much. I'm sorry we've just put you for an hour and a half of career torture. And I said, we'll have to talk about one of your wins in the future. And the first thing Johnny said was, well, even they weren't that enjoyable. And And I think he signed off with one man's name comes to mind. And there's Matt outlined there. That man is Flavio Briatore. Let's move on to a question from Tom Franks, who says, are there any liveries during the V10 era you think are underrated or underappreciated? And Tom says, I think the Williams 98 livery is very underrated and deserves some love. I understand why people dislike this livery, but I've always thought it was very smart. And I'll add here uh, that even Patrick Head says the red Williamses of 98 and 99 were, in Patrick's words, a horrible colour. And he said it was made worse because red was always the colour of the team Williams had been trying to beat for so long. So, Ed, before you pick your own underrated livery, uh, what did you think of Williams going red in 98? Well, far be it from me to disagree with Patrick Head, although I have attempted it a few times in the past, which always leads to a, a lively discussion. But if he remembers the first Williams Grand Prix engineering car, March for Patrick Nev in 1977, was red and white. So they weren't always not red, but... Certainly, while I preferred the the previous Williams livery, the Rothmans livery, very coherent and striking and work, well, I didn't object to the Winfield red as much as others did. It looks a bit better from above, admittedly, from the side. I don't think it was a, a stunning livery. It probably deserves a little bit more appreciation than it got, but I, I don't think it's an all-time classic. But I, I was never militant about this uh, about this colour change. It's just an interesting little move that that Rothmans, the company, made. I think Winfield was their budget cigarette brand, wasn't it? So they wanted to try and push that uh, much more in, uh, in in various markets in in Europe. So yeah, not not too offensive. It's an interesting one when it comes to underrated liveries because there's loads of liveries that spring to mind, but it's that underrated. Are they all Larousses? Well, I've got a lot of Larousses on my list actually. All the multicoloured Larousses I like. I also like the '94 Larousses, the Tortel Green, and the short-lived red and white Cronenberg one. Brilliant. My absolute favourite uh, livery of this era is the Hugo Pratt Ligier that ran for two races at the end of '93. Martin Brundle's car, but obviously everyone everyone remembers that livery and has uh, has posters of it on their walls. So. For underrated, I'm starting my slightly lengthy story to it with the 94 Mile 7 Benetton, which is a green and blue livery that made a big impression on me at the time. I remember I got a 1 to 43 scale model of the B193 test car in that livery because it just looked really, uh, really, really cool. But if you go on a decade forward, and what is ultimately an evolution of that livery, the, the Renault's late in the Bring Back V10's era. So let's say the 2005 Renault R25, Fernando Alonso's championship winning car, that, that, kind of light blue and yellow or turquoise and yellow, whatever you want to call it, was really, really striking, coherent. And for a kind of, for a more corporate era F1, the fact it was such a striking and coherent livery is actually uh, actually quite rare. And I thought it was a shame when Alonso demoed that car. Everyone was talking about the noise for obvious reasons, but I don't remember anyone saying, oh, that was a, that was a great livery. So for such a high-profile car 
the fact nobody talks about that livery as a, as a as a good one, I think ticks the box of underrated. I knew you were going to pick about 12 liveries in that question, but at least by your standards, you did it relatively quickly. But I agree with those Renaults. I thought they were they were gorgeous cars. And I don't know if it's just, I was going to say more time needs to pass, but 2005 was a long time ago. Uh, maybe it's just that the sound is so good, as we've discussed so many times before. But Matt, what about you? Do you have a standout choice? And actually, before you do, I should mention that just last week, we received a, a tweet from James Harvey, who used our Bring Back V10s hashtag in a post where he declared the, uh, how shall I put this, vibrant 2000 Minardi as underrated. Now, Matt, I'm not going to ask you to comment on that unless it is your choice, but what, which one did you pick? I do like that Minardi. I don't think that was hideous. Um, I picked the the genuinely gold Jordan in in the first year of its Benston Hedges sponsorship. So I think from memory, it started off quite yellow and then two or three races in, they went fully gold with it. And I still love that. I think that's really, really elegant and classy. And then it obviously went into the kind of snake's head and hornets and very yellow after that. And yeah, and I, I, I like the full-on cigarette packet version from 96. I think that, that deserved a longer outing. On the subject of that late 93 Ligier, um, I did get a, a message from a friend when Williams unveiled its 2021 car with just a picture of that Ligier. And I was like, I don't think you're quite on the mark. And I, th I wish Williams had gone for that Ligier livery instead this year because it was really, really nice. Yeah, quite. If you can't remember what that looked like, it's basically a sort of Ligier art car and, and quite easy to find. Very, very distinctive. And it's a shame we don't get more quirky things like that. Uh, what am I, Shall I pick one for this? Um, I'm, I'm going to go for... I'm also going for a Jordan. And I should say that if you want to hear more about jordan's evolution of colors during that stage um mark gallagher who worked for the team at the time has talked about this quite a lot and he he has explained on his twitter account uh why jordan went through various stages of gold yellow and i think there was one that was called like the desert storm or something like that and it was all to do with how it looked like on tv and by the end of that yellow era uh, for a while jordan went sort of luminous which didn't quite come across on tv um but it was all about making the colors much bolder but i'm going to pick an earlier jordan i'm going for the the blue sassol jordans the 92 93 94 cars i think that was a really gorgeous color scheme then and the reason i think it's underrated or maybe gets overlooked is obviously it followed the beautiful green jordan 191 the team's first car so probably going blue at the time after that green and blue car from the first year felt a bit underwhelming but if you look at those cars in isolation i think they're very, very good looking. But let's move on. And Ed, we've got a question from Ansi Rulamo, who says, how impressive was Stefan Sarazan's sole F1 weekend in Brazil 1999? Did F1 miss something with him not getting another chance? Yeah, I'd say it was genuinely impressive. The chance came thanks to Luca Badoa breaking his hand in a testing crash at Fiorano. It was a fly-by-wire problem he had on his Minardi. They didn't have an obvious stand-in. They had Gaston Mazzucani as a test driver, but he wasn't super licensed. There were rumours about Shinji Nakano coming back or Lauren Redon even, who tested a bit for Minardi and, and Benetton as well. But in the end, they got Sarazan, who was the Prost test driver at the time, and he was racing in F3000 for the Prost junior team, which was uh, the Appomattox squad. And Sarazan did do very well. He didn't test the car. He jumped into it. On Friday, didn't fit in it that well because he was taller than the regulars. So it was straight in at the deep end, really. Had a big spin on the main straight on Friday in the wet, but he managed to get away with, with that. And he was quicker than Janay by the end of Friday. Qualified 19th, which became 17th when a few drivers got penalties. 
we have to add the caveat that Janay was only in his second Grand Prix weekend, so he wasn't exactly a veteran. And Sarazan did have about two and a half thousand kilometres of testing under his belt for Prost, so he, he knew what to expect from an F1 car. But that was a really good effort. And the race went pretty well for as long as it lasted. He got ahead of Zanardi, but then had a brief off, lost a few places, picked his way back through. And then he had that very memorable, huge crash on the the kind of kink on the main straight, the the second one before the end of the, the straight, because that, that long haul up from the... Uh, from the left-hander's got several uh, kinks in it, so he piled into the barrier. Really memorable for those endless rotations he had after the That's impact. A massive shunt. Yeah, because he had a he had a stuck throttle, which I think was a result of the impact rather than the cause. So he just went round and round and round in tire smoke, which was spectacular. Um, I think there was some kind of failure that was that was blamed for it, but the car was so heavily damaged. I don't think they ever got a, a definitive uh, definitive cause uh, of that crash. But as for Sarazan, he deserves a chance to make a bigger impact than that in F1, obviously. <laughs> different kind of impact but ultimately he just kind of missed his chance he caught the eye with that drive his f3000 season then went decently but not perfectly got a bit of a reputation for being a bit impatient in races and then you had a driver like nick heidfeld who won the championship and he was kind of the next cab off the rank for f1 and indeed he got the the uh, the prost drive almost said ligier there I'm, uh, slipping back in my v10s here so yeah he got the prost drive uh, instead and then the 2000 3000 season didn't go very well it's a very strange thing to say the 2000 3000 season didn't go well for sarazan and off he slid into sports cars with enormous success top sports car drive for a long time i think he had a Hatchick of Le Mans pole positions, won the French Rally Championship even and dabbled in WRC with Subaru. So a really, really good driver. Certainly could have in Formula One made a good career of it. I'm not going to say he was a lost champion, quick as he is, because not many drivers are capable of being champions. But I think with a few things going differently, maybe in F3000, he'd have been higher up people's lists. But what he did there was just one glimpse of what he might have been able to do as a, as a decent Grand Prix driver. And I would just say that the most impressive Sarazan moment from the 3000 debut, wet dry race at Oschersleben, 18th on the grid to victory, upstaging Montoya and Heidfeld. That was his career high, and he probably could have stopped then, apart from the whole Le Mans wins, couldn't he? I love the fact that he did rallying as well, like proper, proper rallying. Like, wasn't, you know, we've seen something like Valentino Rossi do the occasional guest drive and this sort of thing, but yeah, Sarazan was a proper Subaru driver, and uh, I love that. But yeah, great driver. Uh, shame he didn't get more of a chance. Uh, Matt, I've got a question from Thomas who says, what if the wrong person brought the Drivers' Championship back to Maranello in 1999 for Ferrari? Obviously, that meaning Eddie Irvine. Would that have impacted Michael Schumacher's legacy as he didn't do the job he set out to achieve in bringing the glory back to Ferrari? So if Irvine had got over the line in 99 uh, after Schumacher broke his leg, Matt, would that have been a, a problem for Schumacher and Ferrari? I think it would have been hilarious. Um, I don't think it would have been a, a problem for, for Schumacher and Ferrari long term. The hilarity for me comes from the idea of, of Eddie Irvine taking the number one to Jordan to two, for 2000, to Jordan, sorry, to Jaguar for, for 2000 and having that disaster of a season as reigning world champion. I think that would have put an even bigger spotlight on Jaguar going wrong in F1. I think the, but it would have been, it would have been seen by history as an anomaly if it had been Irvine who got that Ferrari title over the line. Uh, the weight of Schumacher's contribution to make Ferrari respectable again by then was already enormous. It would have been clear to the watching world that Schumacher would have won that. If Irvine had won that title, then Schumacher would have won it by a mile without breaking his leg. And everything that happened in 2000 to 2004 would still have happened. And that was what really cemented the kind of Schumacher and Ferrari era. So 
yeah, it would be an, an interesting curiosity with um, amusing Jaguar consequences, but we'd still be talking about Schumacher in exactly the same way. Yeah, I'd never actually considered the fact that Irvine would have been running the number one on the Jaguar. I love that. But I think I think Ferrari got the des- an outcome that they found acceptable. They won their first Constructors' Championship in ages, and they got to they got to just wait a year for Schumacher to win the first one. So I think the first driver's title, I think they were pretty happy with that. But let's stick with Schumacher's absence in 99, Ed, because one of our reviewers, uh, Brundu, uh, said, how would it have affected the rest of the V10 era and all that dominance Matt just mentioned if Schumacher hadn't come back after that 1999 crash? Very, very interesting question. Obviously, the key question is, who is then Ferrari's driver for this period where they won so many championships and would they have been so successful? So if you're looking at the available drivers. You need a world championship caliber driver. Not many of those around at the best of times. This era probably wasn't the absolute best of times in that regard. So who do you get? Mika Hakkinen, hard to get him out of McLaren. I guess maybe a bit later, he might have uh, he might have liked the idea of a switch to Ferrari to revitalize that enthusiasm. Probably not though. They showed interest in David Coulthard before, but why do you want the guy who's been beaten by Mika Hakkinen? Heinz Aldfrenson having a good season for Jordan, but do you really want the guy who failed at Williams? Although Given what we talked about before, I'm sure Eddie Jordan would have found a way to convince them they needed Frenson and sell him for $100 million or something. (laughs) So I think looking at the chessboard of all the drivers, you have to look at the guy who's a world champion driving around in an uncompetitive car, not scoring any points. And this is going to make you very excited, Glenn. And I I think you settle on Jack Villeneuve. They've got the financial clout to get him out even of a team that was built around him. And Bernie Eccleston would certainly have wanted the Villeneuve name in a Ferrari now that they'd lost their their Schumacher their Schumacher star name, so what do you reckon to that, Glenn? Well, I think you've just bought yourself a ticket to every single Bring Back V10s episode there's ever going to be, especially after the rocky start Matt gave us to this episode. We've gone from Villeneuve not winning the '97 championship to driving a Ferrari and inevitably winning the next five World Championships, just as Schumacher did. It's a really interesting in question as to how much Villeneuve would have succeeded in Ferrari. Does it mean that downstream that that Williams would have won a title, say, in 2003, uh, perhaps? Or could Kimi Raikkonen have won that title instead if if Villeneuve wasn't quite at the level of Schumacher? So it's really interesting. Would the Ferrari era have happened if they didn't have Schumacher, given the relative lack of drivers around? And what impact could that have had particularly on Williams and maybe even on the overall success of a team like McLaren? Could they have eked out a few more championships from uh, the early part of the 21st century. Will we now be talking about the McLaren era for, for whatever reason? Would uh, would David Coulthard have picked up a championship or another another championship or two for, for Mika Hakkinen? Really interesting to imagine whether Ferrari could have happened without Michael Schumacher, and I'm not sure it necessarily would have done, not because the team wasn't very, very good, but could Villeneuve do what Schumacher did? Villeneuve was very good, and he was still very good at this point. I'm not sure he could quite deliver in the same way though I, I certainly think Hakkinen might have stuck around longer if Schumacher hadn't been there I think it would have been easier for Hakkinen to get that second wind and kind of come back to his best after pushing himself so hard for those first titles um, I love the idea of Villeneuve in a Ferrari uh, especially at this point I thought Villeneuve from like 98 to 2000 with the, the less good Williams and the very difficult early BARs was was magic to watch but I do feel like that was a time when Villeneuve was at his best in against the odds situations and um going into a Ferrari that should have been dominating up against a pretty quick teammate in Barrichello as well, it would have been. I, I can't see that being five years of consecutive Villeneuve success, but Glenn, I'll, I'll admit that Villeneuve would have had more championships than he has got if he'd driven for Ferrari in the early 2000s. How, how many championships has he got, Glenn? 
in this in this alternative reality? Uh, well, what year are we in now? Twenty twenty one. So he'd still be there, uh, and the cars would have all been perfect. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he'd have won every championship in the twenty first century so far. I think I think that's a given. Uh, we obviously this is the rest of the episode now is mapping out Jacques Villeneuve at Ferrari. I being serious, I'm not entirely sure it would have been an amazing fit. And I actually think that the whole going to the team where your dad's entire F1 legacy lies uh, wouldn't have been a great fit for him either. I, I, I always got the impression that Jacques railed against that a bit in his younger years. Um, I put that to him a few years ago and he demoed one of Gilles' cars at the Canadian Grand Prix. Um, and I said to him, um, is this the sort of thing that you maybe didn't, uh, weren't so into when you were younger and now you've got more of an appreciation of it. And he kind of danced around it. So I think there's a lot of things about going to Ferrari that he probably would have hated. Um, and let's be honest, would he have been the relentless winning machine that Michael Schumacher was? Would he have been that vital cog that the whole team was built around and, and that, you know, every, everybody spun off of Schumacher's brilliance and that's what drove everybody to work so hard under Jean Todd and Ross Braun. I, I, Ferrari wouldn't have had that early 2000s magic in the same way. They still had good cars. They were on the right track by then. He definitely won races and, yeah, hopefully a championship or two. But I also don't think he'd have been there as long as Schumacher. So we would then get into the realms of who else would have been driving and winning for Ferrari in the uh, early and mid 2000s but yeah I'm worried that we are now it's like Ed talking about LaRousse we're going to be stuck on this subject for the rest of the episode okay I've got all the Villeneuve out of my system for this episode and for this series uh Ed we've got a question from Ronster84 uh who says uh, which car do you most wish had been given the opportunity to change the fortunes of a team but never got to race? Uh, Ronster says, for me, the Prost AP05 was rumoured to be something special, but Prost folded before it had the chance to race. There are photos of the wind tunnel model, and yeah, you can find those with a quick Google, uh, and it looks great. Are there any others that were mothballed and never saw the light of day that you would have liked to see? Yeah, that AP05 is an interesting case. It, it does have a big reputation, but there's never as competitive a car as one that never races, is there? It's a bit like the uh, the, the Toyota after they pulled out was going to be absolutely brilliant in 2010. But yeah, you do wonder. And actually, in the case of that Prost, Henri Durand had a big part to play in that car. And we should remember that a lot of the principles and ideas he had, he did later take to Jordan, which I don't think worked especially well. So there's a big asterisk against that one. But it would be nice to see the car put to the test. Although, even if the car was as good as it's rumoured to be, which I doubt i don't think that team if it had survived would have been in a position to exploit it very well anyway so yeah i doubt we would have seen a great deal from it but in terms of of car i'm going to go for a car package and i would have liked to see and we talked about this on bring back v10s before the mclaren lamborghini now we saw the car they tested with the lamborghini engine it was it was quite promising we've got all sorts of doubts about what lamborghini's overall commitment would have been and i'm not sure it would have been quite as good as as hope but the chance for for that engine to show what it could do, maybe for the Lamborghini name to actually achieve something in Formula One, which obviously it, it never has beyond uh, the, the odd half decent result with uh, with midfield teams in that era. So I'd have loved to have seen Senna in a McLaren Lamborghini, or probably if it had, if it had been running the, uh, the the Lamborghini engine in '94, then we'd have been talking about a, a different driver in it. But 
yeah, that, I just like the sound of that McLaren Lamborghini. So I'm just going to keep saying it. Well, obviously Martin Brundle ended up racing for McLaren the following year, and um, he talked about this either during recent F1 testing or the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend uh, in one of his commentaries, and he said that Senna tried to get McLaren to run Lamborghini engines in the last couple of races of the year. So Senna did want to race that car before he left for Williams. His mind was already made up by then that he was going to Williams. And as we've discussed in the past, um, Ron, I think, always claimed that he thought he could get Senna after the Williams deal had been announced. He could get Senna to change his mind. But Senna said it wasn't about works engines. It was about quite simply going and driving what he thought was going to be a great Williams. I'm going to make a pick here. And it's not a car that would have changed the fortunes of anyone, but it is a car that never got to race. I always wanted to see the Dome, the Japanese car that tested a lot in the mid-90s. Um, and we gave them a brief mention in our Lola episode because they were a team sensible enough to see that they didn't have enough money to do it. And that car never got to race. But let's move on, Ed. We've already talked about Ligier a few times in this episode. And you've got another chance now because there's a question from Joe Taylor who says... How did Ligier survive the early 90s and maintain sponsorship despite building a succession of terrible cars where other experienced teams like Lotus and Brabham fell apart and promising newcomers like March and Scuderia Italia failed to gain traction? So, Ed, you're in heaven here just by the teams mentioned there. But let's stick. Let's start with the Ligier point. Is, is Joe's question fair? You know, were Ligier lucky to get through a period where they weren't very competitive? Yeah, I think it's a very pertinent question and it reflects the fact that Ligier had one very big advantage in that it was the focal point for France. So loads of French companies involved, constant attempts to turn it into the French national team and that's how it came to get Renault engines in, in 93, for example. It often had backing from the French lottery. So decent funding, companies like Elf, Goulard kept it stable, although we did see them have to concede a little bit when they took on a driver like Pedro Diniz with his backing. It also had that history stretching back a long way. Now, Lotus was mentioned as a counterpoint, but of course, the UK had McLaren, Williams, Benetton, so they could afford to lose Lotus from that perspective. So there wasn't the political support for that. And you can, if you listen to that episode with Johnny Herbert in, uh, earlier in this series, episode eight, I think it was, you can hear about the decline of, of Lotus. But Ligier just had this extra foundation to get industry involved in France. And even then, Guy Ligier had to sell on the team to Cyril de Roof before it was bought, on, bought by Briatore and, and Walkinshaw. So even then, it wasn't surviving that well. And that, that French national dream did come true when Prost acquired the team and got the Peugeot engines down the line, but it all went well. But the unique position as the French team helped it enormously and stopped it going the same way as one of my favourites, La Rousse which couldn't attract any of that. And there were other French teams around AGS, for example, in the Bring Back V10 era that just couldn't get the, the money involved. So Ligier had some big advantages. And I think in that respect, it actually was a great underachiever because it could have stood on its own two feet because it had certain advantages that simply were not capitalised on. Matt, uh, we've got a question from Rory Goodson, who says, Mika Hakkinen has talked previously about the prospect of him and Michael Schumacher being teammates in 1996. Uh, Mika thinks it would have been very close. What do you think? Oh, 96 is a key element of that because that is not Mika Hakkinen at his absolute finest. If you're talking Hakkinen at his best versus Schumacher at his best, Hakkinen probably faster um, if an outright sheer one lap pace. But 96, you know, Hakkinen has admitted that that was after his massive crash at Adelaide at the end of 95. You know, he was in a coma with a fractured skull. It was a you know, very serious, life threatening situation. 
just four months later, he was back in an F1 car. You know, when he talks about it mentally, uh, I think you believe when he says it didn't affect him from a kind of fear and confidence point of view, but it did take an enormous physical toll in terms of training, in terms of how much it allowed him to focus mentally on uh, on everything being a Grand Prix driver involved. He he reckons it was 98 before he was really back to full strength. And he, he talk, he's talked about being quite unnerved by the arrival of David Coulthard at McLaren for 96 because there was going to be an aggressive young charger up against him when he was in this kind of compromised state. Him and Coulthard didn't get on very well, particularly at the start as well. So, uh, yeah, sadly, I think if Schumacher and Hakkinen ended up together at McLaren specifically in 96, that could have been a real blow to Hakkinen's F1 reputation because it wouldn't have been a fair reflection of how how good he actually was. Um, but when you when you compare them at their best, I think Hakkinen would have got under Schumacher's skin as a teammate just through his sheer speed and his his straightforward attitude and his kind of no nonsense approach to the kind of blurred driving standard ethics that Schumacher liked to play with, as we really famously saw at Spa in two thousand, which Hakkinen talked about so beautifully on Bring Back V10s himself. Um, that was like where the line between how they were both willing to race was really drawn. I think that under the same roof in one team would have been just incredible and explosive and i've got no idea who would have come out on top because it would have put schumacher on the back foot in a way that no teammate ever did um also this question did make me think about how much in the mid-90s it was taken as fact almost for a while that schumacher would go to mclaren because mclaren had mercedes engines and that sports car relationship would be revived and um i made a mental note that we should talk about that one day and bring back v10s yeah, we definitely will. The whole saga around Schumacher and being the linchpin of that driver market at the time. But I agree with you. I think the fact that we're talking about 96 does make us lean towards Schumacher there. I, I think that you really saw Hakkinen become the driver that he would be in 98 through 97. He got stronger and stronger and obviously should have won some races um, that he lost because the car blew up. Uh, just going very quickly back to the Ligier and Prost thing, we get quite a few questions uh, from our listeners about when are we going to talk about Prost? Can we do an episode on Prost? There are so many stories. We are going to do more than one episode about Prost in the future. I, pro- I promise you that that, that the, the the story of that team and its its relatively short existence and how much Alan hated doing it in the end is worth plenty of episodes down the line. So don't worry about that. And yeah, as Matt said there, I think uh, Schumacher ending up at Ferrari and where else he could have gone is an episode of its own as well. But Ed, let's move on. We've got a question from Constantin Golotta, who says, what was the story behind Williams failing to file on time to participate in the 1993 season and requiring consent from all the other teams to be let back in? Well, the question pretty much sums it up there. It was a simple paperwork error. The the reigning champion team failed to get its entry in in time, which is uh, a bit comedy, although I'm no fan of paperwork myself. So I've got a small amount of sympathy, but there will have been someone whose job it was to get that in, and it would be one of those stupid oversights. And realistically, there was never any chance Williams wouldn't be allowed to compete because the FI is not going to shut them out. But the mistake was that it gave the FIA a little bit of leverage over them, even if it was fairly trivial leverage. And there was always the the gap at the top of the entry list for numbers one and two, or numbers naught and two, as it actually was in 93, given Mansell wasn't wasn't around. Benetton and Minardi were the ones who were were blocking it, partly out of uh, mischief and partly because there was all sorts of political wrangling going on regarding the regulations, both for that season and for driver aids in the future so it's part of that wider landscape it's it's not quite as simple as Williams had to agree to driver aid bans to be let in because obviously the driver aids thing 
rumbled on for quite a long time and it wasn't really resolved until the middle of that year for the following year after everyone had been declared well everyone apart from Scuderia Italia of course was declared illegal at, at Canada for running driver rates that that season but it, it was just a, a stupid political error that meant Williams had, was just slightly weakened in, it, in its uh, dealings with the, the governing body which is never a, a nice position to, to be in and actually it probably reflects a weakness of Williams in general that it wasn't always the best at playing the political game Ferrari was particularly good at that, you you would say, during that period. So, yeah, stupid mistake. Didn't make much difference in the end, but certainly made their life a bit more uncomfortable when it came to the uh, the talking shop elements of Grand Prix racing. Our next question is from Windmill David, who left us a five-star review. Thank you very much for that, David. And Matt, you can take this one because the question is, how did Juan Pablo Montoya end up at McLaren? Surely a clash of attitudes that was always destined to end up as it did, of course, with Montoya leaving the team after about a season and a half and just walking away and doing NASCAR. So, Matt, was this always doomed? Yes, and it was obviously <laughs> always doomed at the time, and it made no sense at the time, other than this was the era of um, Ron Dennis being some kind of mischievous magpie mood and trying to sign key rivals' best drivers at inopportune moments to upset and destabilise them, as he did with uh, poaching Alonso from Renault in another deal done over a season in advance. Um, which was just a little bit of a hobby he had at the time almost. Uh, when, when this happened, Ron and, and uh, Montoya as well made a big deal of the McLaren-Senna success and uh, and the kind of potential parallels there with another quick South American driver coming to, coming to McLaren. But uh, Montoya was never Senna. Montoya was explosively talented, but all that kind of direction and focus that you got with Senna wasn't there. There just wasn't a... That wasn't a realistic comparison that anyone should have ever made. And to be basing so much of this deal on the fact that Senna achieved so well at McLaren, Montoya was a Senna fan, Montoya is also South American, therefore this will be magic. No, it was it was just, it was madness really. And you wouldn't have predicted that it would have fallen about, apart so spectacularly with Montoya's uh, tennis-ish injury at the start of 2005, kind of setting the tone for the relationship and then him walking out or being sort of walking out, deciding he was going to NASCAR and then McLaren helping him quickly out of the exit door to replace him with uh, Pedro de la Rosa for the rest of the 2006 season. I wouldn't have seen that coming, but even as a Montoya fan back then, I, I thought Williams and the kind of spiky but competitive Frank, Frank and Patrick atmosphere, that is the right place to get the best out of Montoya. Of course, the door was only open for McLaren to snatch him because things were so spiky at Williams at that time. Ron Dennis pounced after Williams and Montoya had a falling out over who got pit stop priority at the 2000 French, 2003 French Grand Prix with Montoya and, and Raul Schumacher. Um, and that was at a time when Williams hadn't kind of got properly on the pace in 2003 either. That was when their, their, their really competitive run started. Um, so no, I, I wish Montoya had stayed put for the sake of his own reputation even though Williams was on a bit of a downward trend from then onwards. McLaren plus Montoya was never going to work. Didn't see it ending with a mid-season sacking and uh, switched to NASCAR, though. That was, uh, that was certainly a shock. Right, we're into the final stretch then for this episode and, of course, for the series. And, uh, Ed, let's have a question about V10 engines, shall we? JJ Cooper asks, what was the best engine of the era? And maybe more interestingly, and I think, Ed, this more more up your street, uh, what was the worst? So uh, which one do you want to take first? Well, I'll go with the best first, get that one out of the way. It's actually quite an interesting question because there were various periods of engine dominance. But when thinking about the best, I tried to work out which was the one that maybe advanced the breed most 
aggressively. And I, and I ended up hitting on the Mercedes engines of the late 90s because that, this was Ilmer, of course, who was doing those engines. Huge amount of innovation in terms of the materials they were using. Great performance levels using things like beryllium alloy, low-density, lightweight material, great thermal characteristics that just allowed them to produce an engine that was more powerful than than what Ferrari did. And it, indeed, it took Mercedes quite a long time to recover from when beryllium, for example, was was outlawed to get back to similar power levels. So this was the point when they were really a step ahead, I would say, because not many other teams were experimenting with these kind of materials. And a lot of those that that did were, were having quite big problems uh, with it. So, so yeah, I'd go with the, the, the late 90s Mercedes uh, run of engines. As for the worst, it has to be the Life W12, doesn't it? It's remembered as as terrible. It was unreliable, way down on power. It probably had about three quarters of the power of the next worst engine on the grid. Just nowhere near. And it, it didn't go for more than about a lap at the best of the times anyway. And the really funny thing is that that whole Life F1 project was about the engine. Uh, Ernest Vita, who had the rights to the engine, Vita means life in Italian, hence the name, he tried to sell it to a property previously and then thought, oh, no one wants my brilliant engine, so we'll showcase it in our own team and it'll be brilliant and everyone will want it. But of course, it just turned out to be a a, a massive uh, a massive comedy operation. I'm just going to throw in an honourable mention, though, to a, a Bring Back V10's favourite because while the life ultimately was always going to be a, a disaster, that Porsche engine that was used by Footwork uh, in 1991, the one that everyone wanted. We've talked previously about all sorts of teams chasing it. It was just terrible. It was high cost. It was obsolete technology, terrible, heavy. It, it was just a bit like the life engine, only only a bit better, should we say, for, for what it was, a Porsche F1 engine that should have been so good. It was absolutely awful. So pound for pound, perhaps the Porsche edges the life because Porsche really should have known better more than one type of pound there as well because it was it was so heavy uh i'm going to very quickly say the best one for me and this is an emotive answer was was the renault it defined it defined the 90s and took us on to the next level that ed mentioned where mercedes raised their game and then ferrari and bmw and everything we saw that was so brilliant about the 2000s i think came about as a result of the steps that renault took in the 90s uh worst one of the era. Um, well, Gary Anderson always tells us how bad the original Yamaha engine was that Jordan was saddled with in 92. So I'll go with that. Obviously, what we saw from Yamaha uh, with some sort of Brian Hart influence later in the era was a bit more respectable. Um, but that early one was dreadful. But let's move on. We've got another hypothetical from John Butcher. And Matt, you can take this one. John says, if Imola 94 hadn't happened, would Ayrton Senna have won titles in 94 and 97 and been the first seven-time world champion or would we have seen him in a Ferrari in 1996? I can't see Schumacher beating Senna in both 94 and 95. I think the level Schumacher was at and the fact that Williams came into 94 a little bit destabilised and wasn't perfect in 95. Um, even with Senna on board, it wouldn't have been enough to get Williams over the line in both those years, probably one of them. But the, the big unknown about this is all the, is all those Schumacher disqualifications and the ban and everything that basically added up to a, a you know, okay, we know Schumacher really beat Hill by one point in 94. You assume Senna would have outscored Hill by more than one point, therefore Senna wins that title. But yeah, it's the unknown of all the disqualifications. Schumacher lost the, potentially 30 points worth of... Uh, more than that, which is Silverstone 2, 36, um, 40 even, 40 points, set on 40, 40 all the points. points. Worth of, lost all, all the, the points. points. 
yeah, he lost a lot of points. Um, maybe he'd have got disqualified even more because then they would have pushed for more probes into Benetton sooner for different things. It would become an even bigger political story. But no, I don't think he would have won every single title of that period. And I also don't think, even if Schumacher had been beating Senna to titles, I don't think the Senna-Williams relationship would have been over that quickly. I think given the respect both parties had for each other uh, and having seen each other take so much success apart, um, I think Ferrari would have still been the team that ended up with Schumacher for 96. Senna might never have got his dream ending of retiring after a Ferrari season because Schumacher would have been sat in the way there. So it would have changed history, definitely. But yeah, that would that wouldn't have been a Senna title run, sadly, had he lived. Yeah, I've always thought Senna would have ended up in a Ferrari at some point, just because the the magnetic pull of the two names meant they had to come together at some point. And as we've briefly discussed in the past, Senna and Ferrari always had talks, and you just think that they would have ended up there at some point. But I think you're right, Matt, that Schumacher ending up there and a few more years of of Schumacher and Senna feuding by that point would mean that you'd, there's no way you'd end up with them in the same team. So we'll have to come back to that one. Maybe we'll revisit that in our Schumacher Ferrari episode in the future and work out what on earth would have happened to Senna if he was still around. Uh, Now, Ed, Clay Halford uh, picks you out specifically because Clay says one for Ed. And the question is, unsurprisingly, which of the pre-qualifying teams that lasted a few seasons had the best potential to become a contender a la Jordan? And Clay says, I've got a soft spot for Onyx and Simtech myself. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree on Onyx, actually, simply because of what the team did achieve. They got a podium finish. I love Onyx yeah, as well. Yeah, and from a technical and team organisation perspective under Mike Earl, it did have real potential. They, they had things well together. The, the disadvantage was they had a slightly, or even rather erratic owner in Jean-Pierre Van Rossum. And ultimately, when he pulled out, that pulled the rug from under the team. In fact, Von Rossum was really frustrated that he didn't get that Porsche engine we uh, we talked about. So perhaps things wouldn't have gone so well for Onyx had, uh, had Van Rossum stayed involved if they got the, the Porsche. But very often these teams had good people in them. They just didn't have the cash to, to a greater or, or lesser degree. But Onyx was probably the one that that showed the the best uh, the best possibility. Uh, should we say Simtech? I did quite like, and it's worth remembering that 95 car showed some flashes of promise. Jos Verstappen, I think, qualified 14th in Argentina and ran in the top six for a few laps before retiring. So it wasn't without merit, but it never really had the funding. And I'm not totally sure... Nick Worth was the the right guy technically to to head up head up head up a team. I think he had some great lofty ideas and did come up with some great innovations, but I think he lacked perhaps what Jordan had in in Gary Anderson, who obviously you have to declare an interest there, know him well, and he's the race's technical expert. But Gary Anderson has a great practical connection to to racing cars, should we say, which I think really helped Jordan. So I actually don't think any of those teams had that magical combination of the entrepreneurial spirit of, of Eddie Jordan, who who could sell ice to the Eskimos and probably literally did at some stage. I'm sure one day he'll come out with a book that talks about that particular thing. And then the practicality of Gary Anderson and some of the other people involved. But yeah, Onyx is the one that probably deserved a chance to show what it can do with a, with a firm foundation because it had so many uh, good people involved. But that's not to say others didn't. But a team like, say, Coloni, was always struggling so much to get anywhere and it never really had a chance yeah i'd totally agree on the onyx front as well i think a lot of pre-qualifying teams really were there through incompetence as much as lack of funding and onyx was a clear example of something that could have 
done something with a bit more a bit more stability and um, less madness around it. Um, on that SimTech point, I do think yeah, we, SimTech often gets a free pass through being so purple for one thing, but also it's almost like an unraced car because it you know the team fell out fell out of F1 just after those quite promising early ninety five races. So you never really knew if that success could that sort of hint of success could have been sustained. And, you know, we all got excited about Nick Worth's ideas at that time. But as Ed pointed out, when Nick Worth was tested in different environments, a lot of those ideas just lacked the practicality to actually be successful in F1. So I suspect if SimTech had lasted, say, three seasons, it would have been remembered as a, a nice color scheme, but a failed team rather than this kind of tantalizing could have been that it's often often referred to as now. It was a very purple question, wasn't it? We've just spent most of our time talking about Onyx and SimTech. But let's move on to the final question of the series and another chance to end another series talking about CART uh, or IndyCart, as some of you may remember it from the time. Uh, IndyCart asks, when Paul Tracy tested for Benetton, which was in 1994, how did it go? Why didn't he race for them in 95? And if he had raced for them, how do you think he would have done? So I'm going to give us a bit of context here. So let's revisit how Tracy did at the tests because it's quite often remembered and told by Paul that uh, he did a time good enough for fourth on the grid at the Portuguese Grand Prix. And this was in the post-race test at Estoril. And that is true. But a lot of people went faster in the test than they did on the race weekend. And Tracy was ninth fastest at the test, which matched the time of Jos Verstappen in the Benetton as well. And they were both around a second down on Michael Schumacher. Now, Ross Braun said at the time, Paul did a very professional job considering he was new to the car, the circuit and F1. His time was very creditable. I saw nothing to say he couldn't hold his own in F1. He may not be as quick as Michael, but he's at the upper end of the scale and has lots of potential. And there was some brilliant Flavio Briantori fun and games before this test even happened because Flavio tried to get Tracy to sign a three-year contract which had no guarantee of anything more than a test driver deal, but also meant Tracy couldn't race for anyone else in F1 during that time and Briatore would become his manager. And Flavio said to Tracy, who'd already flown to Portugal by this point, if you don't sign this, you're not getting in the car. Uh, Bernie Eccleston then intervened and um, basically barked at Flavio to sort it out and to get Tracy in the car because Bernie had set up the test in the first place. And they came to an agreement where Benetton would get first refusal on Tracy and F1, uh, but nothing more than that. So, Matt, we obviously know that this didn't happen. And Tracy went on to race in America for many more years and eventually win a title in 2003. Do you think F1 missed out on Paul Tracy? And how do you think he would have done if he had come over at that time? I think this question is basically, did F1 need a cross between John Lacey and Juan Pablo Montoya? <laughs> in in terms of attitude, approach, but also ability and inconsistency all all together. Um, oh, it would have been a great story. It would have been really fun, but I can't imagine him actually achieving much in F1. It does say a lot that Tracy's IndyCar kart title finally came in 2003 when there wasn't a great deal of opposition around. He was at Penske for so long. He had a spell at Newman Haas. He had a, a spell at Team Green, and it's in some really competitive seasons. Didn't win a championship. Um probably has some kind of record for number of collisions with teammates through the course of his career. You know, on balance, you'd say after his years alongside Dario Franchitti, that Dario was the better driver, the better package. And, um, you know, he didn't, didn't make it to F1, which is, you know, another story. 
it would have been hugely entertaining had Tracy come into F1. I don't think there's been a lot of success. I can't see it lasting much longer than Michael Andretti's time in F1. I do think Tracy was quicker than Andretti in terms of um, in terms of raw pace. I think it's best left as a as it might have been. It is also really interesting how much F1 was trying to get the top car IndyCar stars over at that time as well, because there's talks of Alonso Jr. being linked with F1 deals. Villeneuve obviously made it. Um, Eccleston getting involved in, in Paul Tracy's career seems bizarre now, but it, um, it did happen. But I think that's a compliment to how strong IndyCar was becoming rather than the sign that Paul Tracy was a massive lost F1 talent. Um, but we definitely missed out on some fireworks. I completely agree with Matt there. Paul Tracy was a very good driver, but I think for him to be a success in F1, he probably needed to be born 12, 15 years earlier, and then he might actually have have worked quite well. I can see him working in the turbo era, but the way motorsport was going, Formula One in particular at that time, I don't think he's that well suited to it. And if if Michael Andretti couldn't quite get his head around it, I doubt Paul Tracy would have uh, been able to, even though he did have a decent level of ability but different drivers have different skill sets and mentalities that work in in different places so uh i certainly don't think in retrospect he'd uh he'd like to have swapped uh, the the career he had in in indycar style racing to, to use the generic term for a go at f1 because i don't think it would have worked and it probably would just deprived him some of his better years in uh in car when it was at its best some of his more lucrative years as well i think he made some good money during that career uh i think paul tracy in f1 for however long it would have lasted would have been incredibly entertaining as matt says probably not much success but yeah i kind of agree that it'd be a bit like montoya on well montoya on something shall we say Uh, it'd have been brilliantly entertaining (coughs) he wouldn't have held back he'd have you know tracy's always been someone who's spoken his mind throughout his career um but if you look back at a lot of the things tracy has said there's a really interesting story and we really are going into bring back cart territory here um when Penske went a bit rubbish and Tracy was still there, he told Roger Penske, if you get me a Raynard chassis, a Honda engine and Firestone tyres, I'll win you the championship. Shortly after that, he got fired by Penske um, and then went to Team Green, who did have a Raynard chassis, a Honda engine and Firestone tyres and basically wasn't as good as Dario Franchitti, as we've just said, and certainly didn't win a championship in it. But again, that's a great example of the type of personality Paul was and I would have really liked to see him come into F1 and go up against some of those um, the drivers of that era. I mean, Paul Tracy having F1 run-ins and collisions with Michael Schumacher, if he could get near him, Jacques Villeneuve, Juan Pablo Montoya, all of that. Yes, please, sign me up. He's also one of about a 1,000 drivers in this era who you could make a case for being brilliant based on a performance in a post-race test at Estoril where they were really, really fast. The track conditions had improved so much uh, after a race weekend that everyone was doing this. This is why Michael Andretti's always on pole by two seconds, theoretically, a few days after the race weekend happens. Right, and, and as we discussed earlier in this series, the only car I think that's ever gone slower in that post-race Estoril test until they took all the wings off it, as Johnny Herbert told us, was the Lotus. So that was that was how bad that car was. That, um, that didn't apply at all. But yeah, they're, they're, this era when there was so much testing is littered with stories of so-and-so did a time that was absolutely brilliant and he probably did it with no fuel, special tyres at half past five in the evening when the sun's gone down and the track's rubbered in and nice and cool. So uh, yeah, a classic story there. And that's why the context is always so important because it's easy to remember, oh, Paul Tracy would have been fourth on the grid. 
when actually the story is he was ninth at the test and as quick as Verstappen, which in itself, given he'd never driven an F1 car or been to Estoril before, is quite interesting. Now, if we go on for any longer, we are going to end up in a bring back car episode. But if classic IndyCar stories are your thing, look out for the Race IndyCar podcast, which is new for 2021. And between its episodes covering the modern day goings on in America, there will be time for some detailed revisiting of classic tales from US racing's heyday. I know they've already recorded one incredible classic story episode, which I think is going to run next month, but I won't spoil the surprise of what that's going to be. But that's another series of Bring Back V10s in the books. Thanks to everyone that submitted questions and reviews, and sorry if we couldn't get to yours this time. There will, of course, be a fourth series later in the year, but we don't yet have a launch date for that. Uh, and the main reason for that is that all the research notes for this series, and I counted them up yesterday, came to 155,000 words in the end. So that is why I don't commit to a start date because there's so much work involved. I have no idea when I'm going to fit all of that in. But let's say the summer, shall we, uh, for a comeback and for series four. Because with so many of you listening to the show, interacting with us, leaving reviews, questions and everything else that we get from you, Bring Back V10s will keep returning for many more series in the future. Until then, revisit our old episodes if there's any you haven't got to yet. Check out our website, therace.com, and as Ed always says, don't forget the hyphen. Follow at We Are The Race on social media, and make sure you're subscribed to our YouTube channel where we put out multiple videos a week, including a few that look back at F1's rich history. If you need a bit of Edge Straw audio in your life on a weekly basis, make sure you listen to the Race F1 podcast where Ed is the host. But for now, I'm off to do all the other parts of my job that have been on hold for the last three months, but it won't be long, I promise, before the research starts all over again for Series 4. Mm -hmm.